1: A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekewisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited, and of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns.
2: Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. The Investment Fix Podcast. Tune in today. Tēnā kautou, kautou. this is Gone by Lunchtime. My name is Toby Manhaya with me today. Happy to uh, introduce Ben Thomas. Kia ora. And Annabelle Leigh-Meetha.
1: Tēnā kourua, tēnā
2: koutou. Kia ora And also a big thank you to Tina Tiller who is on the decks with us today. Annabelle, the hui is back underway.
1: The hui is back on air on March one. In our new time slot, streaming live eight thirty PM on the interweb,
2: and will you on be on the
1: TikToks, the Bebo, MySpace? We're there, and then replaying straight afterwards after News Hub late on Monday evenings. And
2: have you let yet launched an investigation into one of the great mysteries of twenty twenty one, the disappearance of one of the thought leaders, the thinkfluencers from Twitter, a giant of Tuhoi Benjamin Thomas.
1: I, I spent personally several days just wandering around Twitter calling mm. Ben's name, mm. you know, falling down rabbit holes. <laughs> falling down stairs. Falling down Sean Plunkett threads and stuff. <laughs> c- c- screaming Ben's name and got no response. So now I've got Mahi onto it. Mahi's driving around in her yellow mm. electric vehicle, you know, up and down the streets of... Freeman's Bay and Mount Eden and all the flash
2: places. <laughs> Just ben shout, usually shouting hangs out, the out. windows, saying, hmm. "Has anybody seen Ben Thomas and Z?" beer
1: bars and stuff. Yeah, yeah, but no, no luck yet. Huh. We're going to have to roll out Mel Reed and Paula Penfold in a minute.
2: <laughs> you, you abandoned Ben, sort uh, but you didn't abandon your greatest digital love, which is the podcast. Gone by lunchtime. Can you tell us? Tell us what happened. People, people, people want to know. There's I, a lot of upset people out
0: there. I, de- I deactivate my Twitter account fairly regularly, probably oh, at least once a year or so, okay. um, just to allow my synapses to kind of grow back, <laughs> um, to heal my brain <laughs> from the social media space you know, to, into sort of enough of a working condition to get me through the rest of the year, but mm. um, this time, I got 22 messages from people in the first 24 hours, 22 um, including messages. from people saying that they had had numerous inquiries to them mm. about what had happened mm. to me. Um, I got at least three phone calls asking about my personal well-being, <laughs> and initially I was going to just... Stay off for about you know a few days to kind of um, you know get some work done, reset. You know, now I have to really reflect on my relationship with the medium. Mm.
1: Oh, I think you're enjoying the attention of people, like being like, "Oh my god, Ben, are you okay?" But in all seriousness, I actually think it's really cool that people are contacting you to see if you're right. Because I think we need to do more of that as a mm. society: mm. check in with people, see how they are. It's a good check thing
2: that people haven't been. Check the people are mostly concerned. They might have missed a cancellation event. Mm. <laughs> All the tweets are gone. What did he say? Did anybody get a screen grab?
0: Yeah, it was just some, just another fucking bachelor quip. I don't know. Well, it was pretty tough saying off Twitter while the Bachelorette was on last night, um, especially while Horn Dog Lexi was like just going for it with Jack. Um, so I had to start just texting people individually. With the hashtag.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I thought yeah, you quit Are you in front
0: of your TV right now?
1: <laughs> I thought you quit because you got tweet referenced on the panel.
0: Oh, I did get tweet referenced on the panel. That's, I mean, part of why I decided to do it then was, you know, we just had our three-day baby lockdown, and like a robot in a sci-fi movie slowly gaining sentience mm. i started to become aware of how much i had posted during that 3 day period and i like i felt sick obviously <laughs> and then i was like well that's just it's a little blip <laughs> these were extreme circumstances the anxiety of lockdown you know over the past week for instance then i scrolled down i was like oh my god <laughs> Who is this man? (laughs) How did we get here? This is
2: Uh, for all your reality television takes. Tune into the Real Pod, which has returned on uh, the spin-off podcast network. Yeah, or text me at seven thirty or text tonight at any hour of the day during the Bachelor. I'll publish his
1: phone number on Twitter this evening.
2: (laughs) The um, (laughs) the big shout out to Flick Electric who keep the politics ticking. At the spin-off, you can uh, check out the offers they have through any politics page.
1: Just while we're making shout-outs, can I shout-out to Rachel House?
2: Rachel House.
1: Rachel House, the amazing, amazing Ngai actress Mm. who is a big listener to Gone By Lunchtime. I saw her at a a party recently and... um, She's a she's a big fan of the show and a woman of tremendous taste,
2: I huge think. taste, huge talent. Um, um, we're the, this podcast is a big fan of Rachel House.
1: This podcast is a Just huge a official, fan of Rachel House. Ruling.
2: We're also a big fan since we're going down that track of Leonie Hayden, who is celebrating a major birthday today, ba-tiko, and to ba-tiko.
1: whom, ba-tiko. To,
2: ba-tiko. to whom we dedicate this podcast.
1: <laughs> <laughs> this
0: one goes out to Uh
2: Anyone else we want to shout out? We want to shout out the members, the spin-off members uh, who quite literally have kept the spin-off alive through these tumultuous times So join up, become a, become a spin-off member and you too will get to hear more deleted tweets from Ben Thomas <laughs> Right, Ben, you mentioned the baby three-day lockdown that happened. I mean, it was a week ago that we were in lockdown. It seems like a long time ago. And Now here we are, just f- f- flinging into the spittoon. Uh, we are back in level one across the country.
1: Felt like a long time in lockdown. To did it? be fair, did it? I'm, I'm going to take like a a Waitangi Tribunal case, a claim against the government for making me take care of my own children for three days in a row. <laughs> it's not cool. <laughs> And work at the same time. Right. And yeah. try and, like, pretend to educate them. I would not even bother pretending. No.
2: I don't think that's a good idea. I think you need to... Like, it's a you,
1: contemporary claim. I'm allowed.
2: You need a symbolic amount of, here's some working for a short period so that they have done some amount of schoolwork. But it doesn't no. need to be longer than five or six minutes.
1: No, I don't even do that. I'm uh, like, nah.
0: Did, did you read that um, deep dive in the Herald? about the the Wi-Fi horrors in a North Shore home no, where it was impossible to keep all three kids occupied on screens and have good quality for the mum's Zoom call (laughs) meetings for work. Right. And they were like, it's just untenable, this can't continue.
1: Mm, Someone's going to have to go SD. (laughs) (laughs) The
2: the, the ultra-fast broadband, actually, imagine if we hadn't done that. Then the, the country wouldn't have... I mean, we keep thinking the kind of clear comms and the quality epidemiological advice, but actually it was the UFB. Thanks, Stephen to, Joyce, to thank. for not going Stephen completely Joyce.
0: mental last year.
2: yeah <clears throat> Stephen Joyce. Stephen Joyce, Leonie Hayden, and Rachel House to this podcast. Devoted. Uh, was it quite well managed, though, in the end? We, it was a sort of Sunday afternoon deal, and everybody seems to reasonably well know the drill. Ben, was this a, an example of the political management
0: working well again? Yeah, they executed it well, uh, short, sharp. Um, I think it became clear, um, possibly from Annabelle's emails to the Beehive on Monday, mm. but probably from taking the pulse of the nation, the, mm. the threshold, for, you know, the patience for lockdown had eroded mm. Um I found a lot of people, this lockdown seemed to hit them a bit harder than the, you know, you might expect from last year's experience. Mm. When you think about it, it's actually a long time since we had that August lockdown. Mm. You know, it seems like just, just It was all the way back in August. But it was actually, yeah, sort of six <laughs> months ago. And, you know, to <laughs> people's... Um, Tolerance for the lockdowns, I think, has, yeah. has worn thin. Um, you know, which you know, shout out to all of our compatriots over in the UK and the United States who have been dealing with this for a year mm. continuously, and are not allowed back because of <laughs> limited MIQ spots. <laughs> Kia kaha. hang on in there.
2: We did we did some polling uh, around this latest short lockdown, and the numbers in terms of the overall support for. The government's response to COVID-19 just remains kind of almost inviably high. It's, it's still at 79% and it's, rem, it's been between sort of 70, 76 and 85 the whole time. And people, I'm sure that's true, that they see the emails from Annabelle, the, the Waitangi Tribunal claims, but at the same time, there does the, 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 the trust levels have been extraordinary mm. in terms of this extent to which they've remained high, haven't aren't
1: they? Well, if you look at the US, I think today, they have reached 500,000 COVID yes. deaths, more than yeah. um, the First World War, the Second World War and Vietnam combined. And I think that um, New Zealanders, although we're very lucky living in the New Zealand hellhole, I think that we genuinely are aware that we genuinely... Um, are in a privileged position. I thought Mm. the lockdown was handled um, really well. And I I think that it was a very smooth transition into it too. There didn't seem to be a lot of people kicking up. Perhaps that's because it's so close to summer as well. It wasn't a big sort of intellectual leap to go into lockdown Mm. for a few days. But um, man, I'd rather be here than anywhere else in the world. That's for sure. The thing that I am concerned about though is the ongoing issue that we have with um, MIQ workers and people at the borders who are underpaid, don't have great working conditions and, you know, they're our most at-risk group and we've got to take better care of them and that's really on um, private business to, to step up and obviously the government to pressure them to, mm. um, to take care of those workers better because literally the safety of our country is in their hands.
0: There was
2: an interesting moment in the House... Uh, I think it was last week when Chris Hipkins, who's the minister responsible for the overall COVID response, chastised uh, unnamed public health experts, um, but which I think it's safe to assume he meant uh, Nick Wilson and perhaps Michael Baker for referring to border failures. And he went on to say that the, the trouble with rhetoric like that was that it hurt the morale and make people less inclined to work at the border, which may or may not be true. But then when you see in the next breath that some of those people on the border are basically being paid minimum wage, mm. you kind of think maybe that's part of the issue that, too. That,
1: that you is, know? That is <laughs> the border failure. That they they pull the out their pay slips, look at, yeah.
0: look at their, their total pay for the I weekend, they like, I, mean, I mean,
2: obviously danger money or hazard money or whatever is an, is, a, is, a, is, you know, there are various arguments against going down that path. But I don't think many people would have much argument with those who are working in MIQ facilities around the country and at the border and other range of jobs being paid a fair whack more.
1: Absolutely. There should be no such thing as the minimum wage. We should only have... Um, a living wage is a, is a bare minimum. But the the other thing too is ensuring that they've got um, adequate sick leave and all of those things, because if they don't have enough, then they're not going to, you know, them and their know that they share their homes with, you know, need better working conditions so that if you are feeling a bit crook, that you do know that you can take a day off and go get tested and all of that stuff too.
0: Yeah, it's a no-brainer. Uh, the border should be gold-plated. Everyone should be being paid, you know, d- double like oil rig workers, mm, you know. Absolutely. If we can have them doing, you know, long shifts on, long shifts off rather than commuting in, you know, every day, th- that would be ideal as well. But essentially, there is no amount basically that we can spend on the border that would be too much uh, at this stage, particularly in the dying days as we come through to, you know, the the vaccine rollout program has started. The end is... Hopefully in sight, touch wood, you know, barring barring South American variants with sort of, you know, 18 heads or whatever kind of, kind of flaring into mm. f- full life. But, you know, th- there isn't any amount that we can spend on the border that's too much, and I would have thought that making it a pleasant or at least attractive place to work would be, you know, foremost amongst those priorities. It was interesting to
2: see the National Party seem to have... Accepted that generally there's support for the measures, and they've uh, I think I think (coughs) unanimously they have supported the 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 decision to go into lockdown and shifted tack in the form of Chris Bishop on the weekend, um, making the argument that there should be 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 a serious examination of building bespoke uh, MIQ facilities uh, outside Auckland, which is something that's been talked about, including by some public health experts for some time. Maybe it's a bit late in the piece for that, but that seems like a that seems like a more a richer vein to mine for the opposition that we need to rethink the hotels as MIQ mm. in the way that they are in some of the places, including Melbourne, I
0: believe, or Victoria. Mm. Yeah, hotels were only ever meant to be a stopgap measure because they were big, empty spaces with lots of rooms. They're certainly not designed for quarantine. They have lots of communal spaces. They have, um, you know, it's a small areas. So some of the MIQ hotels, the windows don't open, you know, and people spend basically two weeks without yeah. fresh air. Yeah.
1: They say that it's a matter of, um, when I say they, you know, they, the brainy people, Them. the immunologists, yeah, and that say that it's, it's if not when we get the next... Um, round of some sort of super virus so it seems to make sense that we would invest in those facilities now even though we are hopefully at the tail end of COVID and in a country where we still have people living in cars and deciding whether or not to separate their children from from one another or you know remain in a car together it seems that though that that sort of accommodation would be put to good use between epidemics.
2: What about if we go old school and just convert, like, for example, Waiheke Island into a quarantine island? You've got some connects there. Annabelle, do you reckon that would work?
1: We could actually, Pakatoa's for sale, Pakatoa Island, Mm. and it's got, like, hotel facilities and all of that stuff there. Let's buy Pakatoa. Let's get Pakatoa back.
0: Buy Puketua. I'll put that,
1: buy, that in my treaty claim.
0: Okay, do, a, do a fundraiser <laughs> like we did for that beach down in Nelson that no one's visited since. <laughs> Didn't Gareth Morgan buy that beach?
2: No. He, oh, did he get gazumped by Yeah,
0: he He, he, he offered crowd, to
1: buy it fun. if he could hmm. have it to himself okay. for a certain amount of time. Puketua like Island and the
2: it. beach in the sounds.
0: He wanted a timeshare with the people of New Zealand.
2: The vaccination programme is underway, which is a good thing. And Mm -hmm. for those MIQ workers that we talked about, it does mean for many of them that they'll be able to hopefully uh, resume some of the... I saw saw some of them say they've been living level four lives and hopefully they'll be able to move more into that. As far as the... it It was certainly fortuitous timing for the government that when this last short snap lockdown went through, the vaccination rollout was basically underway. uh, in terms of that level of support, you wonder whether or not people would have been so on board if Mm. that part of the solution hadn't already been begun.
1: Mm. um, We actually have a a poll coming up on our first um, hui programme this year. About Ben Thomas. um, About Ben Thomas's disappearance and the most popular theories, but Mm -hmm. also what the uptake... Will be for Maori mm. of the vaccination mm. program. Um, what if there if there is vaccine hesitancy? What the key factors are for it, and also what the incentives would be to mm. get those people to reconsider and get on board. So, looking forward to reading those. And you don't seeing. have the
2: results yet. You can't yet. tell tell us here.
1: <laughs> can't tell you here.
2: Okay, but you we, can we see them on work. Monday got, night at um it's, it's i mean they 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 did did some they released some numbers from the ministry of health did some research into that. Mm. and there is a higher skepticism i think um, um, among maori and pacific island communities mm. and there's that other real problem of uh countering misinformation mm. right that mm. it's i mean they're saying the right things do you think that they will that the authorities will be able to reach into those communities to well, get a message
1: out uh, uh, Well that's, I think that's going to be the clincher is seeing what their Māori specific plan is for educating Māori mm. talking through you know, their concerns, how you access them whether it's through marae or their you know, their their local order or whatever. I haven't read a lot of information about this that yet, Um are they going to target them on social media? I don't know. Um, but obviously that's going to be critical to you know, the, the uptake because, as you say, Māori do display higher levels of um, vaccine he- hesitancy, and, and we know why that is. It's about suspicion of the, the, the state mistrust, and it's, it's, um, it's a universal pattern that you see with iwi people that have um, obviously had a rough historical relationship with their
0: governments. We've had a trial run of this with the initial lockdown. I don't know if you remember how jarring it was when the first lockdown started last year, you know, walking along the streets and all of the bus shelters were COVID-19, stay home, stay safe signs. Mm. Every YouTube at you know, thing that you loaded would start off with a COVID nineteen mm-hmm. ad. The radio, Radio New Zealand, which normally doesn't have ads, had COVID nineteen mm-hmm. uh, notices. It was just blanket coverage. Um, Facebook was rife with it, and it showed that you know, we still can actually reach most people mm. um, if there's a will. And I would expect that we, we will need to see the same, you know, level of, of commitment in terms of communicating that message, you know, full-on Robocop dystopian future, just wherever you go, you, you hear about the vaccine. I don't think... I think Ewe are a, a natural ally of the government in this. I think mm, I, I think Ewe did a really good job. Um, you know, if you look at uh, those checkpoints during um, the covid-19 in terms of getting their stuff out getting out resources getting out food getting out supplies to people even in far flung places you know tuhoi who I who I do a bit of work with um, you know were very busy on that kind of thing going into you know the sort of wildest reaches of taurawhetu and kaingaroa um, and I, I can't see any reason why that wouldn't happen again um I, I think most Iwi organizations are very cognizant of this threat mm. and are very. Are very on board with you know with get even guys like Hone Wester you know who are about as anti-establishment as they come mm. are going to be key figures in in helping get their people protected through the vaccine.
1: I agree, and yet we're also seeing the the Billy T K type mm. characters who are although they can't get elected obviously, um, but they they are, there is a groundswell of support for people like him. So it's like how do we get into those? Mm. How do we target those communities? What are the messages? What is the security they feel they need mm. to be okay to take this vaccine?
2: Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. In the middle of that lockdown, there was a, another news story that sort of suddenly exploded into the onto the tiles in Parliament when Jacinda Ardern appeared and was, by many accounts, the angriest that uh, anyone had seen her, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Trans Tasman relations were wobblier than many analysts had seen for anywhere else, and that surrounded the news of a young woman with two children who was uh, detained after attempting to cross from Syria into Turkey. She was linked to ISIS or ISIL or Daesh or Islamic State, uh, and it transpired that the Austra- she was a dual citizen. She'd moved from New Zealand to Australia when she was six years old, and the Australian authorities had Suspended her citizenship, withdrawn her citizenship, uh, leaving her with only a New Zealand citizenship. Live and of course it's uh, it's it's a breach of international law to render anybody stateless. So that meant that it, New Zealand was left holding holding quite literally the babies of not literally but nearly literally the the the, the children, particularly. And Jacinda Ardern was furious about it, she talked about it being an abdication of responsibility. This was not normal diplomatic talk. She said Australia needed to stop exporting their problems, uh, which was a kind of sort of a similar language to the language she's used in the past in relation to the 501s who were Mm. deported from, who who have been deported from Australia. Of course the difference between the 501s, who are people who mostly have had uh, criminal records or imprisonment in Australia and then deported to New Zealand, and is that they didn't have Australian citizenship, so in this case it was someone who also had Australian citizenship, and it was very much your problem, mm. uh, and probably playing to the, the 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 Australian popular sentiment at the same time.
1: Oh, well, the thing is that Australia doesn't even take back its own like dual citizenship aside mm. their own born and bred Australian jihadi brides I watched an amazing documentary on Four Corners in mm. 2019 mm. about a grandmother whose daughter had become you know, had married a, a young Muslim um, man in Australia and had become um, fundamentalised and they went off to Syria with their tamariki and stuff and she was on a mission to track down her her daughter and her mokopuna who were living in a, in a refugee camp in the most horrific circumstances. And however you might feel about those mothers, whether they willingly went or were coerced or bullied or abused into it, them aside, the idea that you could have Australian tamariki living in a refugee camp through no actions or, or you know, nothing to do with them completely innocent is absolutely abhorrent but that's that's what Australia does they so I'm not at all surprised by by his stance and it's kind of ironic that a that a country that was founded by imported convicts um, now has zero tolerance for it. convicts at yeah. all <laughs> the reality is is that New Zealand We need Australia, don't we, in terms of our trade and stuff. We can't really exert any – there's no levers that we can really pull, and I don't think there's really the appetite for it. The only way the 501s, the jihadi brides issue is ever going to get solved is through diplomacy, and that is going to take a long, 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 long time. If it ever happens, but what I think we need to do is accept the fact that these people are coming back, they already are, and we we don't really have the resources or the facilities or even, it seems, the will to take care of them and integrate them back into society. But the reality is that we have to because they're coming and they're already wreaking havoc in terms of, you know, pee in the provinces and all of that stuff. We can't afford not to get some proper resource and programmes around how we bring these people back F- the into the world. The you're to
2: Yeah. That, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, as far as this case goes, though, Ben, the principle seems pretty clear, but the politics... Australia's not going to change its mind, is it
0: they're not going to change their mind they never change mm. their mind mm. um, politically good for Scott Morrison, good for Jacinda Ardern, and that she can she can take a strong stand, she can blast scomo and it won't make any difference um, that's no reason not to blast scomo, but th- you know for years we've seen the erosion of the rights of New Zealand mm-hmm. citizens over in Australia you know in welfare and education compared to Australians in New Zealand. Um, We have this sort of one-way traffic. You know, we didn't deport the Christchurch shooter to Australia.
2: Well, Um, I mean, on that point, which I think is an interesting one, I don't want it to be a cheap shot, but I do wonder if it had been the other way around and there had been a shooter in Australia who had grown up all formative years, all family, all education... In New Zealand, and then I imagine that you would have heard a lot about the New Zealand terrorist. Whereas, as far as certainly as far as the political leadership was here, there was almost an active resistance to try and kind of mm. to try and kind of fob it off as an, this guy's an Australian, which he is.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and you know the five hundred ones. A lot of them have never lived in New Zealand, you know, at all. Mm. Um, and now have just come over here to sort of set up organised crime, <laughs> and
1: new side hustle.
0: <clears throat> yeah, yeah, that's right. You do, do your OE, you know, mm-hmm. set, set up a um, set up a P ring in the Bay of Plenty. Um, and yeah, I mean, look, there's no there's no solution to it. Obviously, giving Australia a few tips about how to run their their external affairs didn't work out too well for Damien O'Connor. Um, you know, telling the Australians that they needed to be a bit more respectful of China. Um, New Zealand has a lot less stroke and influence in international affairs than I think that we believe we do. Sometimes I think that New Zealand is a bit like the sort of Lisa Simpson who kind of comes to try <coughs> and arbitrate between two arguing adults and of- often thinks that their words are going to carry a bit more gravity than they actually do.
1: Um, gone by lunchtime, listeners. Um, if you want to watch that documentary that I was talking about, it's called um, The Orphans of Isis. The woman, the grandmother's name is Carol Nettleton, and it's a Four Corners documentary, and it's a it's an incredible watch if you've got a spare 45 minutes up your sleeve.
2: Is that the one where they... Because there's one of those programmes where... Like one of those ABC programmes where they... Actually speak to this particular woman mm. in Syria is that, that one they it go
1: uh, that they follow mm. the grandmother into Syria into the the refugee camp she 's right. got to run around and try and find her daughter, which is obviously hard when every woman there is wearing a a burqa and you can 't identify them and find her Mukupun and stuff it 's an incredibly powerful heartbreaking Story and it just shows how how callous mm. Australia is even towards its own citizens, well, children.
2: This 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 particular woman who's twenty six years old uh, had, had had three children. One of them has died, and now has two children. You can just and somehow somehow made her way from uh, the refugee camps in, in Syria, the camps in Syria, to the Turkish border, which is a very long way. It's mm. kind of. It's extraordinary, really. Um, I should say that we are speaking on Tuesday morning at around 10 o'clock. And so it was a very unfortunate timing as far as one of the other big political stories of the week is concerned, which is the latest data on child poverty, which is probably being revealed by the Department of Statistics or StatsNZ rather around now. Those numbers, Annabelle, will not reflect the COVID impact, because even though they go to they go in theory to June 2020, they stopped collecting the data when COVID hit, um, mm-hmm. so it won't be distorted by that. The expectation is, and we don't know because we haven't seen them, is that they'll measure a slight improvement. Mm. Um, is that good enough?
1: Well, I personally don't think it is because I think that while I understand that you can't for whatever reason, collect that information during lockdown, and I don't even know how it is that they collect that information. But I think it's safe to to assume that most of those kids would have been doing it much much worse um, in lockdown. So I don't know if they if they're going to build in like some sort of massive reduction, because I think we should be measuring people at their poorest, not just on on average. Um, I'm really heartened to see um, the poll that was conducted that mm. showed that, was it 69% of New yes. Zealanders, 73% of, of young New Zealanders support a, a raise in um, benefits for for our most vulnerable you know, if we're to look at the um, cannabis referendum, if we're to accept that fifty-two percent or whatever it was was a mandate not to legalise, then I think we can take this as a as a very strong mandate that it's time to raise benefits and raise them mm. now.
2: We had um, Ben. There's uh, uh, assuming there is a little bit of shift. It'll be you know, there's the families package, the winter energy payment, best start payment. There's that stuff. But as Annabelle mentions this uh, poll this UMr poll uh, to a, a reliable poll that was commissioned by a a, a group of, of NGOs um, suggests that there is a broad public support for an increase in base income levels um, that was rec- the recommendation of the welfare expert welfare advisory group there's been resistance on that so far and you know it's pointed out that this is you know that that that's that's a big operation that's an operational spend increase rather than Chucking money at people went off, but is the is it is are we reaching a point where it's kind of an irresistible uh, pressure, momentum, consensus in favour of lifting basic benefit
0: levels? I mean, remember, basic benefit levels have been lifted. They were lifted last year by the government um, in advance of, yeah, as part of initially their COVID response package. Um, and I think there was a suspicion that all they were doing was bringing forward an announcement from the budget that was already planned. Um, it was a there tiny
1: was, amount too.
0: It was, a, was it, $25 a week. Mm-hmm. Um, so only the second Lift in real terms since the 2016 budget, I think, which was where John Key and Bill English raised it by, I think, twenty dollars a week. Mm. So it is making up some ground in real terms. Um, prior to that, there had been no sort of non-inflationary increase since uh, 19, 1991, when they were cut, you know, by 25 percent, I think, in the in the mother of all budgets. So.
2: It, the Welfare Advisory Group called to they, increase they benefits from between 12 increase. and 47%. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, uh, and the Greens had as part of their confidence and supply agreement with the last Labor government to overhaul the benefit system. That was agreed. But anyway. You
0: know. so, so, yeah, you'd, you'd be hard-pressed to call it an overhaul. Yeah. Um, but it is interesting, right, because in the past I don't think we've seen that kind of... Support for raising benefits. You know there has been this sort of narrative of you know dull bludgers, etc. And thankfully, we're moving away from that. You know, nobody is. You know, back in the back in the days of the 1990s, when nobody blinked that John Banks was on talkback every week, um, it, it was this popular narrative that you know beneficiaries, solo mothers, were living high on the hog. They were spending all their money on booze and cigarettes and partying all the time and it, you know it it seems that thanks to you know very good journalism good work by advo- advocacy groups we've now got a better reflection of actually what the unfortunate you know poverty at the bottom of our society you know actually looks like mm-hmm. um and people do seem to have a more realistic view of that um and and you would think look it, it probably is time you know to re- to raise assistance the only problem is that without addressing all of these other issues we have, particularly housing, you know, just as we saw when student allowances and student loans went up, um, a lot of that flows straight into that lower end of the rental market. And, and, and landlords just see that as a, as a reason to increase rents. So without addressing other issues, you know, you won't get the full impact of raising benefit levels. So all of these measures to address poverty are much, you know, they're, they're still more complicated than, than just raising the benefit levels, although that obviously won't hurt. Mm.
1: The rent bludges.
0: <laughs> That's right.
1: The rent, <laughs> rent the... bludges bludging off the government by raising their tenants' rents.
2: Well, I think the most important thing we can agree is that any measure that increases house prices is a good one. That's what oh, that's right. To, to <laughs> the the,
0: the okay. engine room of the New Zealand economy. Quite. Um, very quickly, it seems
2: like a long time ago now, but I think it is since we last podcasted, is that there was the uh, flare-up in Parliament over, over ties and um, Rawiri Waititi, who is the co-leader of the Māori Party, um, who'd already had a few run-ins with Trevor Mallard, the Speaker, mm-hmm. um, Uh went into Parliament wearing a heitiki,
0: mm-hmm.
2: um which is like a pounamu uh, carved, very elegant, and was uh, ejected from the House. Mm. Anyway, one thing led to another. There was a blah, 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 and in the end he won. <laughs> and it was some variously described as a kind of important, really important symbolically in terms of um, two-day wrote uh, the former leader of the Green Party, wrote a terrific piece for us on that subject, mm-hmm. or as trivial. But... It also showed, Annabelle, and I'm curious on your thoughts on all of this. The Māori Party are pretty good at pretty good at doing politics so far.
1: <laughs> they are. Well, uh, you know, I've heard that. I think it's a great thing, and I think the House of uh, while while I believe that you know, himana, party pārimata, you know, Parliament is a is a house that has its its own mana, mm. and I don't think that people should be wearing their stubbies and work shirts into Parliament. I think you know it should be formal attire, but it is a House of Representatives, and so it should be representatives of what our different iwi in New Zealand, you know, Pakeha, Maori, Pacifica. Asian, it should reflect what their their cultures say, are, their their taonga, their, their their formal symbols and stuff. So I think it's a it's a great achievement for the Maori Party. of of I've, I've heard the argument that it's that it's trivial politics and that they should be getting on with it, and that it's just symbolism. There might be a bit of truth in that, but here's the thing. The Māori Party isn't in government. They're not going to be able to push through sweeping policy changes. So in order to remain in the public eye and and remain in the conscience of of the people, they have to have these political acts that's going to keep them relevant and out there. So I actually think it's really smart politics that they're cherry-picking these issues, and while they might be symbolic symbolism, you know, can be important, and so I think um I think good on them, but I also think it 's a good way of keeping the party's profile out there it 's a it 's something they were able to achieve despite being in opposition because we know they 're not going to be able to you know make sweeping policy changes
0: yeah it's a hundred percent right what they 're doing is showing that they 're going to dig in they 're not going to give any ground they 're not going to yield on you know Trevor Mallard or anything that they see as you know business as usual, the establishment. In contrast, you know Peter Sharples and uh, Dame Tariana Turia achieved a lot in government. You know that often gets glossed over. Fano Order is still going and it's growing in importance in government. Um, they stopped the Kermadec Sanctuary um, because of its infringement on Māori fishing rights. That's debatable. They they had they made uh, improvements to the RMA um, that, in, that in, you know required more consultation with iwi. What they couldn't do, though, is convince their um, supporters and their voters that they were sufficiently independent mm. um, and. The current incarnation of the Māori Party is really at pains to show that it's, it's that they're their own people, that they're not beholden to anyone, that they're not going to give an inch in these fights. Mm. Um, and, you know, politically, I think, you know, given the fate of the previous incarnation of the Māori Party, that's the right thing for them to do right now. Mm. Um, Street cred. I'm amazed that it got to that point because, you know, the requirement is into the standing orders is for business attire. I think anyone who looked at Rawiri YTT would think he's dressed for business. Mm. You know, he's not, he's not dressed for clubbing. He's not dressed for jogging. He, you know, that's business attire. And the thing that rankled with me is it gave a chance for all these fucking nerds to jump in and go like, oh, "I've never felt comfortable wearing a tie. Oh, I didn't like wearing a uniform at school. Or like, all these just sad fucking fifty-year-old white dudes who are like, <laughs> you know, as as the first big day out, man. I've I've, I've never liked authority." <laughs> ben Thomas is currently
2: wearing a three-piece suit <laughs> with a cravat.
0: I, I actually think that stuff's important. I used, to, I used to put on a tie to call into radio interviews. When I was
1: You're a dick. <laughs> You're a dick. Let's end.
2: Uh, love you, Ben. Love you, Annabelle. Love you, Tina. Thank you, Flick. Thank you, members. Thank you, Leonie Hayden. Thank you, Rachel House.